you take your program for just one moment and open it to the far left panel, Fellowship Franklin under new studies and classes. Uh, Mike Vogt is uh, a member of Fellowship. He is part of the Brentwood uh, campus, but he's an extraordinary teacher, and uh, he has done some studies. We call them study in the barn up there, like, like Eric and, and Rob have done some studies here that are two, three, four weeks in length. And uh, Mike is going to present the, uh, a series on the life of C.S. Lewis. Mike is a phenomenal teacher. Not only does he have a great uh, breadth of knowledge base, but he's good as a presenter. He's interactive. He uses a lot of support material, AV and whatnot. He's fun to watch, fun to learn from. And if you have the time and margin, Wednesday night, starting on the 13th of January, uh, he's, he's so popular on the Brentwood campus. And he said, hey, I'll go down to, to Franklin. I'd be glad to do it on a weeknight. So he's going to come down here and do that. So if you have that margin, you can take a look at that. Um, Rob mentioned Frozen, just as a sidebar, um, I don't know if you're, a f- I'm a film score fanatic, I love uh, Mark Isham and Thomas Newman and uh, Alan Silvestri and some of these guys, and I stumbled across a long interview, it's like a two hour interview, um, I think it's called Theater's Roundtable, but it was all these guys along with a guy named um, Beck, who wrote the music for Frozen, and it was very interesting to read, there was originally, that was a patently Christian story and song that they adapted into Frozen. I, I've not seen Frozen. I plan to keep it that way. Um, but uh, but uh, when they presented it to Disney, they, he talks about they had to ex- extract anything that was Christian-oriented out of the, the lyric and the song that was originally written. But it's an interesting story behind the story. And some parents told me afterwards, oh, there's a lot of good redemptive things. I said, great, go watch it again. Be warm and be filled, and I'll be unfrozen. When, when you hear the word blessing or blessed, one of those Christian words we use all the time, it means everything, therefore it means nothing. So when we say things like God bless you or bless your, and when you say bless your heart in, in Middle Tennessee, what do you mean? You poor stupid person, right? <laughs> bless your heart, bless your heart. And you say God bless you when someone sneezes because we were told as children your, your heart stopped for a second and you might die when you sneeze. I don't know. That's true. Uh, but uh, what, do, what does it mean when you say bless or blessing? What does it mean to be blessed or to bless somebody? Favor? What else? A gift. A gift? It means everything, therefore it means nothing. We can't answer it. What does it mean? To be blessed, to give someone a blessing. You're blessed if... In the Old Testament economy, there were two, lots of them, but two primary categories of blessing. The first was fertility. If you were a a couple and had lots of children, God was blessing you with offspring. And unfortunately, for our modern ear, it had to do with boys, because you needed a progeny. You needed children, sons who would bear more children and have, have lots of children. And so you wanted a tribe of boys. And when you had fertility, it also went into flocks and herds. Because you want your flocks and herds to reproduce because that was blessing from God. That required rain, it required feed, all sorts of things. The second most obvious one was land. Because if you grow in tribal numbers, you need more land. If you grow in herds and flocks, you need more land. So for the Old Testament ear, for God to bless you meant that you had a lot of children, a lot of grandchildren, a lot of people who could work the farm, work the land, work the livestock. Your livestock reproduced and you had the land to expand. Tandem with that, of course, was material financial blessing. Because if you have flocks and herds and crops that are blessed, 
you have more ability to make money. So that was typically the way they thought of blessing. By the New Testament, the word takes on a more spiritual nuance. Not that there was no spiritual meaning in the Old Testament, but the New Testament era was different. We studied Ephesians. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We don't need any more. We've got every spiritual blessing. But we still look at bigger, better, newer, more as blessing. A promotion, our increase of our business, our job, our children doing well, having lots of children. We look at those tangibly as blessing. That's not wrong or bad. But we're going to read a book today that's going to talk about blessing in a little different way. We are starting a study in Revelation. We will go through the first four chapters that will take us to Easter, uh, actually through Easter Sunday. Um, listen to a quote by uh, Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa. Just as Genesis is the book of beginnings, Revelation is the book of consummation. In it, the divine program of redemption is brought to fruition. The holy name of God is vindicated before all creation. Although there are numerous prophecies in the Gospels and Epistles, Revelation is the only New Testament book that focuses primarily on prophetic events. Revelation centers around visions and symbols of the resurrected Christ who alone has authority to judge the earth, remake it, and rule it in righteousness. It's written about 95 AD by the Apostle John from the island of Patmos. Patmos was a Roman penal colony. It was not a luxury vacation place. It was a hard volcanic landscape that Romans sent their worst to. We don't know the precise history behind why John is sent there. We can conclude that he was teaching and preaching something contrary to the Roman government, and especially under Titus Flavius Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-O-N. He was the, the, the power of Rome at that time and the one who exiles John to this penal colony. Um, it's addressed to the seven churches, seven historic churches of Asia, uh, uh, modern-day Turkey, and it's done in a counterclockwise fashion as you read your Bible. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, not the one here. Uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These churches were a mixture of Jew and Gentile believers. They don't fare very well in the record uh, teaching that's going to be uh, pronounced against them. Uh, one does better than others, but they're cultures that are rife with sin, and that sin had affected the churches in these seven areas. Greece and Rome are the political superpower of the day. We talk about America, whether it was once or is now, can be debated, the superpower. Russia, China being superpowers, maybe North Korea is going to be a superpower. But these, these countries that have lots of power, lots of political clout, lots of war capability, Rome and Greece were the two at the time. And what they would do, for example, in, in Israel, when they go into Jerusalem, they occupy with a garrison. We think of a military base today. So you have, you have troops that are there. Those troops are there to do a number of things, to keep the peace, but also to enforce taxation. Nothing is new. Since antiquity, this is true. You go into a land, you occupy that land, you put military power there, and you tax the people. You have to, you have to tax the people to support the troops and the garrisons that are there, but also to feed Rome because they have this empire they have to feed. Rome's interests were uh, growing. They were the world-dominant power of the day. Now, the purpose of Revelation is a bit uh, complicated to distill into a sentence, but I would suggest that it is to comfort the persecuted believer and to encourage those who are not living faithfully. 
It encourages but also confronts them. But it's to comfort the persecuted Christian, the one who's living in that time frame and things aren't going well. But it's also to both encourage and confront the ones who are living in sin. Now, as we think about Revelation, there's a lot of, a lot of things we kind of put in our mind as we open this book to study it. And the first has to do with theology. There's a lot of theology, but I want to just mention two overarching areas that are strong in the book. The first is Christology. Christ is the ruler of heaven and earth. He was the lamb that was slain. He's the lamb that's going to come again. He is the one who's going to save his chosen ones. He is the great and good shepherd. And uh, in the first three verses we'll read, he is the, it is the Christological centerpiece. There's probably, if you take John's gospel and you take this uh, introduction and perhaps the epistles, that would comprise heavy Christology. It's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can't miss it. Uh, I've written in the top of Revelation 1 in my Bible, unparalleled Christology. There's not any other book of the Bible that talks about Christ in these terms and information like the Revelation. By the way, it's Revelation singular. There's no S on Revelations. When someone says Revelations, that's like fingers on a chalk, fingernails on a chalkboard to me, sorry. Revelation. Uh, the second is God's wrath. So we think about, we, we like the idea of Christology, learning about Christ, but it's also about God's wrath, a subject we don't like to talk about, and ultimate justice. It deals with the great tribulation, the battles that are both physical and in the spiritual realm that we can't see, but we get some glimpses in. It's a God of love who brings wrath and judgment. And unfortunately, this does not play well in the ear of our current culture. Uh, love wins in our culture. It's all about God's love and about tolerance and loving everybody. Um, think of God, it, it's, a, it's a poor illustration, but I think a fair one. A two-sided coin is love and wrath. God's love is not altruistic universe. He loves everything and he's ooey-gooey and he accepts it and doesn't want, sin, doesn't want uh, war and injustice in the world. That's the world's definition. Don't let the world teach a theology. Always go back to Scripture. God's wrath is the other side of his love. Case in point, when Christ comes, his only begotten son, whom he loves, one of a kind, he lets him be killed. He pours his wrath on his object of love for God to show you and me love, he has to kill his only son. Not only does he kill him, he pours the wrath of all time on him, which separates him from the Father, which is why Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's been separated in this perfect relationship from his perfect father who loves him perfectly, and he allows his wrath to be poured on his son. If he allows his wrath to be poured on his son, why in the world would we think he wouldn't bring wrath on sin? Our salvation is the, cause, is, the, is the winner of this wrath. So God so loved the world that he pours his wrath on his son. That's biblical theology, not the way the world defines God's love and a loving God would do X or Y. A loving God is perfect. He's just. Yes, he's merciful and gracious, but he's holy, and he will execute judgment in his way and time. This is the final and complete judgment that we have the record of. There are many other areas of theology, angelology, and so forth we could look at, but those are just two high attempts. How do you interpret the book? It's a very key question. How do you read this book and understand it? John Walvert observes, attempts at its exposition are almost without number, yet there continues the widest divergence of interpretation. 
Uh, you can read hundreds of thousands of articles literally about Revelation and how to interpret it. Throughout history, uh, people have looked through uh, several lenses or approaches to how to understand the book. I'm going to give you four very briefly. A little bit of Sunday school today, but to give you a framework for what we're going to do in the weeks ahead. Um, there are four primary interpretational frameworks. The first is the historist, the historist view. This is a prophetic panorama. It begins at the first century and goes to the second coming of Christ. It's a very narrow band. So those who hold this view, and typically Reformed uh, theologians hold this view, it's just a slice of pie between the first century and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, the strength of this view is that it eliminates some of the bad interpretation of the book. For example, people that set dates or they overinterpret. Gog and Magog are they're going to be Russia, or it's going to be China, or the Antichrist is uh, Hitler, or some other person they identify with. And so there's some wisdom in the approach to correct uh, improper interpretations. However, what do you do with the things like the tribulation and the Antichrist and the millennial schemes and the timing and the eternal state and the different judgments, the great white throne of judgment, the different judgments of, of the Jews, of the Gentiles, of, of the demons. I mean, lots of things interpretively that are missed if you just look at this book as a segment from the time of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The idealist view you don't hear a lot about, but this is where people are primarily symbolic or allegory of the, of the book. The preterist view is very popular today, and this is where the prophecies were mostly fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem. I mean, after all, if Christ is left, and just a few years later, Jerusalem is turned over by Rome and destroyed, and the temple complex is razed and destroyed by uh, invading power, that would seem like the end. And so many people hold the preterist view that most of these conflicts have been fulfilled in the early church and they no longer have application. Now, before I look at the last one, let me give you a little side note on history. John writes about 95 AD. In 118, uh, Hadrian comes along. And Hadrian, when you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you to Israel, we'll talk about Hadrian and Rome and what he did in Israel. Uh, Rome was a very powerful empire that reached all over the world. And what they did in Israel alone would take a lifetime to study. But Hadrian, as a Roman emperor, allowed the Jew to return after 70 AD, after John's writing. He lets them return to Israel. Now, in the meantime, he had built a temple to Jupiter, and it's argued where that is precisely. Some think it was on the temple complex proper or near, near to it. But nevertheless, this is the holy city, and he builds a temple to Jupiter, which would be uh, like the Dome of the Rock, the, one of the holiest sites of Islam. So go up there and bulldoze it and build a temple complex. You would get a little, you'd get a little opinion about how you're, that was going on. People wouldn't like it. In fact, so much, it ends up as a three-and-a-half-year war uh, led by Simon Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba is a Jewish legend, and this is all historically easy to check if you want to study it. For three-and-a-half years, he leads a revolt against Hadrian. Unfortunately, he's outnumbered and outgunned, and 580,000-plus Jews are slaughtered, and over 1,000 villages and towns of Jews around this area are destroyed, and the Jews moved out again. This is all historically true. What's more important than all that is Hadrian renames the land and banishes the Jew, and he calls the land Syria-Palestinia. 
Syria did not exist. Palestinian did not exist before Hadrian. This is the same Syria you're hearing about today. It's the same exact landmass. The Palestinian is the stick in the eye, though. Palestinian is probably a slur on the word Philistine because these languages, it's, it's like when someone in the north says, um, you skies, and here we say, y'all. Now, we, we kind of know what they mean. It's, it's that different. So when you say Banius or Panius, it's the same thing in Israel, same location. So when, when they talk about Philistinia, it was a slur probably against the Philistines who were the perennial enemies of the Jew. So if you want to insult the Jew after you've moved him out of his land, you call the name Palestinia, Philistinia, which gets glossed into Palestinia, which gets glossed into Palestine. And so these land fights have been going on since 118, 136 AD, and they'll continue to go on. So just as a sidebar, if you were living at that time and these events were happening, what we tried to stress before, you think, man, this might be it. This might be the end. And so all these are taken into a context when the last view has to do with the futurist view. And this holds to uh, the, the structure that these things are going to happen in a future time. They will literally take place uh, prior to and after the second coming of Christ. And there are some advantages. This is the view I take. You may take one of the other views. That's fine. You can still buy me lunch and I'll enjoy it. Um, we can still be brother and sister in Christ if we hold different views. But I hold to the futurist view that these will literally take place. Two reasons. Number one, this takes into account what we call the historical, grammatical, contextual interpretation of the Bible. When was this written? What did it mean to the first audience who heard it or read it? How do we then understand it today? And we appeal to grammar and to theology, plain sense of the language. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And so we talk, we, the big word we use is the hermeneutic, how we study the Bible. So when Rob and Bill and Lloyd and I study the Bible, we're using a hermeneutic. What did it mean? So I tell you the Hadrian story. Why? To give you a framework of what was going on around the time John is writing this. All right? So we want to understand what was going on then. How did they understand it, best we can ascertain? Theologically, what does it mean? How do we apply it today? There's one interpretation, but many applications. And the second strength to me of the futurist view is what I will call the nature of prophetic literature. How do we understand prophecy? If we're, Scholars debate this, but some will say there's over 600 prophecies that were literally fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's just round that number to 100 to be very conservative. That we could identify 100 prophecies that came true in the birth of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and so forth and so on. If you read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, you will have what they call the, the rabbi's torture chamber. Because when you read that Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, if you don't have Christ in mind, it's really hard to figure out what in the world those two uh, chapters are talking about, especially the brutalization scenes in Isaiah 53. That's at least 700 years before Jesus is born. Did the audience in Isaiah's time who heard that account know that that meant a guy was going to be crucified on a cross? Probably not. So the nature of prophetic literature, it meant something at that time, but they didn't have the full picture. After Christ is crucified, everybody's going, that's what Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant. That's what the psalmist wrote. 
predating that. That's what he wrote about in Psalm 22 and other psalms. No bone will be broken. He'll be buried among thieves. I mean, all these things are coming into light, and they make sense. The nature of prophetic literature, when it's written, the audience hearing, receiving, relaying it doesn't necessarily know exactly what it meant in that time frame. But when the event occurs, make sense? All right, if that's the nature of prophetic literature, we come to the New Testament, do we change the rules? So some things that are prophetically written in the book of Revelation, we read it, they heard it, we're not real sure what it means in the future with all these images of the great dragon and the great harlot and the lake of fire and brimstone. We're not real sure what that means. So the nature of prophetic literature is, even though we don't understand the precise application in our framework, it doesn't change that it's the Word of God, and the hermeneutic, the way we study, is the same. Make sense? So to me, these two are the strongest reasons we look at it from a future view. It's still going to happen. We're going to argue about time schemes and all that. We won't get into that in the seven churches series, but that's a, that's a big picture of the book. I know it's a little bit out there, but I want to give that to you, because as you read this, you're going to have questions, and we want to try and help. Charles Ryrie writes this. Each book of the Bible is important, but the last book has the added significance of being the consummation and climax of God's revelation. The book of Revelation is especially significant because it concerns things which must soon take place. We would not know many of these things if the book of Revelation were not in the Bible. It is the major, but not the only, prophetic book in the New Testament. John was commanded not to seal the book. And those who read it are promised a special blessing. Apparently, therefore, the book was expected to be understandable and helpful to those who read it. It is an apocalypse, literally a revelation, designed not to mystify but to clarify. Summary, you should be able to read and understand this. God didn't give this to us to confuse us. Or say that's not part of the Bible as some of the arch reformers did. Luther didn't like Revelation. He didn't like James. They didn't know what to do with it. Ryrie's saying, wait a minute, if God included this in the canon, we call it the canon, he concluded this book, John the Apostle writes it, it should help us. Now that may mean we have to do some homework, which leads me to the next thing. I want to give you four resources that may help you. John Walvoord was, for about three decades, one of the leading prophecy writers in the evangelical community. He's very easy to read. Now, I say that, I qualify it. The first resource that Dr. Walvoord I put up there, the commentary, is, is a little bit, um, this I would say is college education for you who have a degree or 12th graders who are really smart. Uh, this takes a little gray matter. What Dr. Walvoord does is what we call marshalling the evidence. He'll talk about the four views or the six views or something and then say why he holds to a particular view. He's obviously going to be a futurist, but he's not going to be grinding an axe about it. And he does it in a very systematic way, a very respected scholar. The second book by Walvert is a, um, a re redone book by Hitchcock and, um, and uh, Raleigh. And what they did is sort of updated his prophetic series because he, he wrote a ton about prophecy. In the 70s and 80s, uh, prophecy conferences, people went by the thousands to prophecy conferences. Today we all yawn. Nobody cares about it. We go to things like Love Wins, you know. And passion conferences. We don't care about prophecy. All this stuff trends. In the 70s, man, prophecy was the bomb, and people were really into futuristic stuff. The late great planet Earth, all this kind of stuff. Well, this series has been updated, and again, it's very readable, and it's more of a this more of a book to read as opposed to commentary. 
The third resource is Ron Rhodes. He was a, a good friend of mine, is a good friend of mine, and um, I interview him from time to time when I have really hard questions. Ron is the Robbie Zacharias for every man. If you don't know who Robbie is, that's okay. If you do, you know what I mean by that. Rob, Robbie's a guy you need an open dictionary to follow when he talks. I mean, he uses words that no one but Robbie uses. And uh, he's a brilliant Indian apologist. Ron is the apologist for every man. And this book is really easy to use because what Ron does is he says, number one, pray before you read this part of the Bible. Now, read these verses over a few times and meditate on them. Now, here's some questions to answer based on reading those verses. And then the last part is, write down three things that you learned or you're going to do based on those verses. And I started this before Christmas and have been going through it. It's a real easy study. It's a Bible study method approach to the book of Revelation. It's not going to rock, you know, it's not going to be hard to read. It's not going to challenge you in that way. It's going to bring you into the Bible and teach you some things and teach you the observation, interpretation, application thing that we harp again and again and again on how you study your scripture. The last one is Bible.org. It's a website and there are thousands of free resources, both audio and PDF and Word documents you can download. Um, they do a great job. If you're a Tommy Nelson fan, the guy out of Denton Bible Church, Bill McRae, Ken Boa, John MacArthur, uh, Mark Dever, you name them. They're on there. It's all free. And you can just, you know, revelation yourself to the end. Knock yourself out. I would encourage you to bookmark Bible.org because if you get to a place where you go, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? Don't Google that. Go to Bible.org and type it in. And you'll find some good resources about something like that. So it's a really good place for you to bookmark. Let's look at the text proper. Let me ask you to stand and read with me in unison. It is the Word of God. Let's read it well. Let's read together. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Thanks. You can take a seat. The title is taken from the opening words, the Apocalypsis Yesu Christu. Apocalypsis means the disclosure, the unveiling, the revealing of. It's a fascinating term. It's, it's, this is making fully known. Now we have four gospel accounts about the life and work of Christ. We have Pauline theology teaching us about, about election, predestination, our destiny as born-again believers to become transformed to the image of Christ. We have all the accounts of the early churches through the letters of Ephesus and Corinth and the Thessalonica and the pastoral epistles. And we end with this book. This is the next part of Christ. This is part two, we might think, of the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the revealing, the unveiling, the rest of the story, we might add, and there, back to my earlier point of theology, it's unparalleled in its Christology. Who is this Christ? What happens after the ascension? What happens next? This is the part two. The revelation comes from God through Jesus Christ and is communicated by his angel. And this leads people into all sorts of rabbit trails. People are obsessed with, who's the angel? Who's the angel? Well, we don't know. That's the short answer. 
The best speculative answer is it's Gabriel. Because Gabriel's identified in Daniel 9, four or five times. He's identified in Luke chapter 1. What does he do in Luke chapter 1? What's Gabriel, who's he announced something to? Mary. What's he tell Mary? You're going to bear the Son of God. So there's an attraction to the fact if he's the angel sent to tell Mary, uh, it wasn't a prophet, it was an angel sent to tell Mary she's going to have the Son of God. It might be attractive to say he's going to send an angel to tell John about the second coming of Christ. So there's some appeal to that. Uh, he is, in verse 2, to those who testified to the testimony established by John as a witness. It tells us he's an eyewitness. Now, testimony and testified are Christianese words like blessed is. And that therefore, they mean everything, therefore, it means nothing. I don't know why certain words trigger in me. Maybe they don't in you. This kind of, eh. When I hear, let's give a testimony. I'm sorry, I just don't get all excited about that. Now, I love to hear people's stories, right? We like that word. But testimony just sounds kind of King James-ish. Something. I don't know what it is about it. Just, it's just weird to me. Maybe you like it. That's fine. Stay with me. What is a testimony? What we've seen, what we've heard, what we know. So let's not let the world teach us theology, nor Christianese teach us theology. Let's ask this question. What would it mean to testify? To tell what you know. To tell what you've seen. To tell what you've heard. And if you read John's epistle, 1 John, he has a beautiful job. What we've seen, what, what our eyes saw, what our hands handled, what we heard, we give him to you. We hand him over to you. It's the, the senses are really strong in 1 John. I love the way he writes in that chapter. We're giving what we know to you. And here we have the same idea that he's testifying. He's telling what he's seen, what he's heard, what he knows to be true. That's the testimony of John. So a testimony is a great thing. If we take the Christianese piece out, by the way, when you tell your story, you tell them what you know, what you've heard, what you believe. It's the most powerful thing you and I have. So when I was a teenager and in licentious living and drugs stoned out of my mind all the time, and I come to Christ and get stoned or intoxicated three subsequent times, and each time worse than the last, after the third time, never again in all those years, have I ever abused or been intoxicated or drunk or stoned ever again? That's the work of God. I don't care what you tell me. And to go from a proud, licentious, all-about-me child to a person who cared about others, who was, had a very sensitive conviction of sin, I felt a shame all the time, a guilt of my sin in former life, even at 15 of age. And then I wanted to know who he was and what does it mean now to live as a forgiven person. You, I didn't go to seminary at 15. I didn't have a Bible study. God did something in my life. I saw it. I heard it. I experienced it. You can't take it away from me. Life change can't be taken away. That's a testimony. Telling what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know. And we, of all people, should be the most eager to tell our story. Given the proper opportunity and relational capital tell someone what we've seen and heard and believe. Well, the blessed is he who reads and who hears the, the words of this prophecy. It's an intriguing feature only found here in the Bible, twice in Revelation. No other place do we read. If you read this and heed it, you will be blessed. If you study the book of Revelation, you will be blessed. That's what you're reading today. Interesting, isn't it? Last book of the Bible. If you read this, You'll be blessed. Well, a little more to it than that. Let's look at it. He who reads is singular. 
So it applies to the individual who read it or heard it. Remember in antiquity, when this is written, it's not copied and tra we transmit information so quickly today, can't do that. In antiquity, it was taken to those seven churches, and perhaps more, and it was read. So John or others who would read that letter, they were blessed in the reading of it as a contingency. You have to keep it too. Secondly, he says, those who hear. So we go from singular to plural. Then he says, implied, those who heed, heed or keep or obey. So he who reads, those who hear, those who keep it and obey it are blessed. Present active, continuing. You will be blessed, ongoing. So that's why we started with thinking about blessing. For the time is near. Five times we read the phrase in Hebrew, obviously, but in Daniel, a very similar idea. The time is near. In Revelation 22, 10, we'll read the same phrase, for the time is near. That's why some of the books are so called, the time is near. We hear, this is what goes into the word imminent. The doctrine of imminency. It's kind of a complicated doctrine in a way because we don't know what to do with it. Imminency means it could happen anytime, we just don't know when. And it's hard to live in a constant state of imminence. The wise and foolish versions who trim their lamps and watch their wicks and keep were to be ready. The master could come anytime, be on guard, don't be lazy, be diligent. It's hard to live in a constant state of imminence, right? Um, Matthew 25, 13, be on alert. You do not know the hour nor the day. But then he says later in Acts 1, 7 to the disciples, it's not for you to know the times. So how do you live in this, this tension? Um, Cindy lives with this idea the Lord's going to come back anytime. I mean, she, like when the news is really bad, she'll say, the Lord's coming back. The Lord is coming back. She says all the time. She lives with the doctrine of eminency better than I do. I have this really bad theological joke. No one has ever laughed at it. No one ever will. It's a bad joke. And I say, I believe in the doctrine of imminency, just not in my lifetime. See, nobody laughed. I'm consistent. I'm batting a thousand. So it's a bad joke. What am I saying? I believe it up here. I don't live it practically. I truly don't wake up thinking the Lord could come back today. I find it hard to live in a constant state of the imminent return of Christ. That is what Scripture teaches. The cure to that, or moving in a solution to that, is to be more aligned with the person or work of Christ. Because as we're walking by His Word and His Spirit along with His people, and we're more aligned to this world is about Him, not about me, then hopefully my alignment is, okay, I'm trying to live for Christ, and I want Him to come back. And I'm in interested in His return, not just about me and my life. Live as if Christ is near because he is. It's hard to manage. We'll talk more about that as the series goes on. The prologue does a number of things. I would say, first of all, it, it establishes authority. It establishes the, uh, the authorship. Who wrote this book? Why? It is the very Word of God. As I said many times, Dr. Hendricks used to often say, this is not what God would say if he was here. It is, is what God is saying because he is here. And you are reading the very Word of God. And we're reading a book that says we'll be blessed. If we read it and we keep it, you will be blessed. Um, the promise of blessing is a little bit innocuous if we don't understand what it means to be blessed. So prosperity theologians, I would argue, are 50% accurate. If I told you you give $10 and God will multiply it 100, we have a problem. That might work for a few people. It doesn't work universally. And it certainly won't work in an impoverished culture. You go over to parts of Africa, you go to Sudan, and you preach a prosperity gospel, it's not going to make Sudanese 
people who get $80 a year rich because they give 10% away. So that's the lie of prosperity theology. But the, the truth of giving and the truth of open-handedness is as we live faithfully and open-handed with what God's given us, I, I say God puts us in a posture to receive blessing. If I'm living tight-fisted and it's all about me, it's all about bigger, better, newer, more, it's all about my plans, my dreams, my life, my marriage, my children, my grandchildren, my future, my retirement, my, my, it's all about me, I don't see any necessarily welcomeness to God's blessing other than just to use it on myself. But as, as we grow in our faith and say, you know, this life isn't just about me. It's about loving other people and serving Christ. And those change depending on the time, right? Sometimes we're serving Christ by loving others. And so as we love others, love God and love man and serve people and share our, our story, share our testimony, we're living a life of faith. And I need three things, God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people to help me. I can't do it alone. I, there's no Lone Ranger Christian. You can't do this alone. You need, this is our only authority, God's Word. I need God's Spirit to help me rightly interpret it. I need God's people to keep me on track. And I need God's people to walk with me. I'm encouraging them. They're encouraging me. That's why I have a community group. That's why tonight, every Sunday night, we'll have a group in our home. Every Sunday night, all year round just about. Because I need them and they need me. And they send in me. We're doing life. I love that cliche. I love that cliche. We're doing life together. What does that mean, doing life? Sorry, I digress. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. That's what keeps me strong. That's what keeps me on page. You will be blessed. And if you're living that way, we're a little more vertical in orientation than we are horizontal. Now here's the $64,000 question. If living faithfully puts us in a posture of blessing, what does that blessing look like? That's what the story's going to unfold. As we look at this book, what is God going to do in your specific life as you read it and you study it and you align yourself with God's Word, God's Spirit, and God? But what's He going to do in your life? Sometimes the blessings are literal. Sometimes they are fertility. You're going to have children. Some of you are coping, please no more. Some are infertile in this room. A lot of young couples are infertile. A lot of them struggle with it. Or maybe your business is going sideways. Maybe He's going to help you in your job, your career, your business. Maybe He's going to help that one son or daughter you have, or grandchild that's breaking your heart. Maybe it's going to help your marriage. I don't know. But if we're in God's Word, submitting to God's Spirit, walking with God's people, that's a pretty good posture, I would argue, for God to bless us. If I'm not in God's Word, I'm not controlled by His Spirit, I'm not in any community of any kind, why would He bless us? If it's about a relationship, right? It's about working with Him. I was listening to This American Life recently, and um, they had an interview, uh, a study with, it was girls primarily, but Snapchat, the Instagram, Pinterest, all, all the, the addiction, literally, that these young girls have to their device, and all the OMG, and I, I hate you, and you're so beautiful, I want to kill you, and all, all the language they use when they post pictures, and the, the obsession with the selfies in particular. And, and they were talking about the you can't go offline because if you don't respond to something, you, you socially are becoming a pariah. So if you don't stay engaged with it, your peer, when, when I was young, when most of you were young, you had peer influence. You were popular, you were a geek, you were a nerd, you were a jock, whatever, you know. But today it's all around that social hub. And, and the, the, I don't know how you extricate it. I don't have any solutions for you. But what the interview brought up was the instantaneous nature of social 
media giving them an identity. And it was so tied to this device. And crazy thought ran through my brain, convoluted to get there, was what would my identity to Christ be like if I was as obsessed with living my life the way Christ wanted me to live as I am with technology solving my problems, or i gotta, I got to respond to that. In other words, what's the most important thing for you and me? I don't know how to tell anybody to do this. This is part of your spiritual life and mine. Is this walk with Jesus more important than the horizontal stuff of life? If so, how? If so, why? You've got to ask those questions. Because we're all just lemmings. We're just, we're just going to work. We're just in the rut. You know the definition of a rut, right? It's a grave with both ends kicked out. And we get up and we do the same every day. What breaks that for you? You say, wait a minute, my life is about serving Christ. My life is not just about bigger, better, newer, more, what I want to do with my life. My life is about Him and other people. Only two things last forever, God's Word and God's people. Where are you going to spend your time? Where are you going to invest it? You'll be blessed if you read it and keep it. And the keeping part is a little, it's unique for each one of us. What does that mean for you to keep His Word? Where do you need to obey? Where do I need to obey? It's not universally, we all do one, two, three. I will make a promise, the Scripture says, you read it and you keep it, you'll be blessed. It'll be interesting to see how God will bless you between now and Easter. Stay with us as we start the book. Father, thanks for these men and women, for their patience as we begin a new book. Thanks for all the ways you have blessed us already in ways we tend to overlook, forget, not even acknowledge. Help us to be men and women uh, committed to you, pursuing you, longing to be alone with you and a Bible in our lap, longing to be alone with you and your spirit, conforming and transforming us into what we're not, and to walk along with God's people to shape us to be more like you. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you well. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.